0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit stonegatefellowship.com. Start settling in and get started here. I'll give you a chance to settle in by reading a few uh, quotes to you. I learned a long time ago from a mentor of mine. I have a box in my office. It's a I don't know what kind of box it is, it's just kind of box that works, so however that helps you, it's about this big. And I keep these size cards in it, and for the last, I don't know, 14, 15 years, if I find a good quote, I title it, write the quote down, and then alphabetize these in a box. I've tried to, be, I've tried to do them on my computer um, in different ways, but I don't like it. Uh, I'd rather just have it written down. So for those of you that are sitting there saying, boy, that'd be a great way to do that on a computer, I don't care. Um, this is the way I've done it for 15 years, and I'm not changing for your brilliance. But let me just tell you, I um, had a few I hadn't filed and wanted to read them to you. Let me read this to you. It's... Um, kind of interesting. I'm not trying to make a political point. I just like the last paragraph, so bear with me. Uh, The reason why a bachelor's degree on its own no longer conveys intelligence and capability is that the government decided that as many people as possible should have a bachelor's degree. There's something of a pattern here. The government decides to try to increase the middle class by subsidizing things that the middle class people have. If middle class people go to college and own homes, then surely if more people go to college and own a home, we'll have more middle class people. But home ownership and college aren't causes of middle-class status. They're markers for possessing the kinds of traits of self-discipline, the ability to defer gratification, etc., that let you enter and stay in the middle class. Here's the paragraph I like. Subsidizing the markers doesn't produce the traits. If anything, it undermines them. One might as well try to promote basketball skills by distributing expensive sneakers. And so uh, if you were paying attention to that, that's really funny. Anyways, um... Here's a quote from Mark Twain. This might be relevant in our highly polarized day. I know Mark Twain may not be your favorite, and he's not exactly uh, you know a, a Billy Graham kind of guy. But anyways, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Another quote I have on this same piece of paper says, leadership is rarely found in the middle of the pack or the group. So some interesting things to consider. Psalm 51, I want to start there again this morning. Psalm 51, just a prayer of our heart as we begin this time together. And we'll get to Hebrews here in just a second. Thanks for being here. Things are winding down as you're finding Psalm 51. If you want to read it with me as a prayer, just a little bit of information about, um, our, our schedule. I'll be with you the rest of April. I might be with you through part of May. Scott Hall was going to be teaching you through the month of May, but, uh, Scott's had some family issues that have him away in South Carolina. So he has had to be taking, been taking care of family and that's put him in a position to not be able to prepare. So more than likely I'll be with you through part of May and, um, I'm just going to be really straightforward with you and tell you that that may happen. It may not happen. But if it does, I will probably teach you um, primarily leadership material stuff from things I've been doing the last year. Rather than some exegesis from the scriptures because... All of my exegesis work, my pastoral preaching work, is going into Sundays, and also preparing for a trip to train about 250 pastors in China, and uh, also for some other speaking engagements that I have, as well as camp. My most important issue on the map right now is that I'll speak five times at camp to our high school kids, and that is by far the... The thing that's on my radar, so preparing for that. So just being honest with you, but if we cancel May, the reason for that is because um, we just feel like we may not be prepared well enough. There's also another men's trip going to Glorietta. Leon, when is that? First First weekend in May. What's that again? Second, third, and fourth. So the last trip to Glorietta, if you guys are wanting to help us get that place finished and get ready for our arrival, uh, some, some just uh, great stuff going on there. And if you know any kids that need to be going to camp, get them there. And if one of yours is uh, one of the ones that hasn't signed up yet because you think they're going to be blessed better by playing one more game of baseball or soccer on their select team that you think somebody cares about, you need to put them in camp for the benefit of their soul rather than that uh, false uh, living through them that you're doing. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Love you, love you, love you. Psalm 51 verse 10. God creating us a clean heart and renewing us a right spirit, a steady spirit. Do not cast us away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. And uphold us with a willing spirit. That phrase in the Hebrew, to uphold me with a willing spirit, literally means give me a heart of courage to keep pressing on to greater things. It's a tremendous word. It's not just a word that says, Make me, give me a heart that wants to just finish. It's a courageous heart. It's a fighting heart. It's a warrior's heart that he's praying for. Only when God does that will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Father, would you open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things from your word. As we, as we really hit the brakes on two verses that have oftentimes been abused for the cause of the church and High Attendance Sunday, but really have such deeper meaning for us as men pressing into the heart of God and you pressing into us and the importance you have placed on the daily life we have to preach the gospel by the way we work and in these last days. I thank you for the sacrifice of these men to get up early to come to this time. For those who were here making coffee early and who picked up donuts and different things like that. But we ask that you'd open our eyes and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter uh, 10 of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And um, as I told you the last couple of weeks, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are the heart of the book of Hebrews. Uh, book of Hebrews follows a very similar pattern. That many other books of the New Testament do. You'll have an introduction, you'll have some theology, and then it'll move into application. With the book of Hebrews, there's very little introduction. In fact, it's not much more than a passing hello, and then immediately it dives into the depth of who Jesus is. He's superior to Moses, he's superior to the angels. You have this interlude in chapter 4 where he says, don't miss the rest for your soul that God offers. He uses the example of the children of Israel missing the promised land. And then he talks about this once and for all sacrifice of Jesus that solidifies our salvation. And then when he gets to chapter 10, about verse 19, it's a transition. And it's a transition into what do we do now? It's just like Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, theology. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, what do you do now? Romans, all the way through chapter 8, well, all the way through chapter 10, really 9 and 10, and then chapter 12, what do you do with it now? Colossians is the same way. Philippians is nearly the same way. And here in Hebrews, he's transitioning into what do you do now? He's talked about how our being is changed. We're teaching this. Dean and I have the privilege of walking with our seniors on Wednesday nights and we're trying to teach them how the heart of being a follower of Jesus is not behavior modification and sin management. It is a being, it is the inside, it is who I am, it is the me that makes me who I am being changed and how that radically changes my behavior. The gospel is all about my being being changed. And by the time you get to chapter 10, verse 19, he's going to begin pushing into what do you do with this truth related to your life. So I'm going to pick up in verse 19, but this morning we will only be in verse 24 and 25. And we're going to kind of go through the, the, the depth of the words. And then I want to give you four things to consider related to your day to day life. So, verse 19, therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, we looked at this last week. If you don't have the notes, let me know. We'll get you a copy. But since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that blood that was once and for all shed for our salvation, by the new and the living way, that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. All this referencing how Jesus paid the price so we could enter into the holiest place, the presence of God, be in his his life and his glory. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. Remember that word was this lashing down, the confession of our hope, without wavering, he who promised is faithful. Now verse 24 and 25, the meat of our text this morning. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you want to go to your notes, I'm just going to walk through those with you. The first part that says exegesis. I'm using this word exegesis. It's a big theological term. It's not a big word, actually. And it literally means just letting the scriptures exit out of themselves what is inside of the scriptures. The opposite of that would be eisegesis, reading into the scriptures what you want the scripture to say. So what we want to do is exegete what the scriptures say. You guys do that When you read the Bible and you say, What does it say to me? When you say, What is the scripture teaching me? What are the words saying to me? Rather than what do I want the words to say? We live in a culture that really likes to let the Bible say what they want it to say rather than letting the Bible speak clearly. So we're doing our work of exegesis. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. But I really want you to see the depth of the words that the author is using here. So let's pick apart a few words. Verse 24. So let us consider, you can see the definition there, to think about deliberately and to find a way to make it happen. So this whole thing that he's going to tell us to do is a discipline. It's something I have to... conscientiously make myself do. It does not come naturally. You could say it may not even come spiritually. It is a command. It is an imperative. I have to find a way to do what he's about to ask me to do. And you're going to see in a moment, it is my tendency to back away from doing this. It's a tendency to push away from what I'm being asked to do that is essential for my life, for your life, and for the life of our city. So let's keep going. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Now this is my favorite word in the whole passage, and, and I'll show you why. Look there in your definitions. I, I just put it in bold, stir up. I gave you the Greek word. You can say that however you choose to say it. But listen, look at some of these definitions of this word. It's a very rarely used word in the New Testament, but it says, to, it means to spur up. Look at this one, to stir to anger, to irritate and to stimulate, to be, I love the fact that we're biblically being told to anger each other. It keeps going, to be provoked, to incense, uh, to, then I gave you a repetition of that, provocation and irritation, but let's look at some other places in the Bible where this is used so you can see how serious this word is. Go back to the left in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Acts, Chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, same word, and it describes the action of the Apostle Paul. Then we're going to move to 1 Corinthians 13 and see something different. So Acts chapter 17, we're we're referencing this word about how to stir each other up. The writer of Hebrews is telling us we have to do this to each other. In fact, we have to think about how to do this to each other. We have to think about how to hack each other off if we have to. But there's a reason for it. Because you're fighting for something more. It's why I love analogies related to sports. Because you can get a sports team together and they get on the field together. And they refuse to not stir each other up because there's a greater victory at hand. And oftentimes we don't see the greater issue at hand. And so look at Acts chapter 17 verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word, provoked, is our same word that we have here. He was angered, it stirred him up. It's, it's the same anger many of you feel when you see things in culture that you know are wicked and wrong and are destroying families and people. It's the same anger you feel when you watch the nightly news or read the Wall Street Journal and you read something that makes your, I'll use this phrase, it, it makes your blood boil when you know it's not true and it's, it's hurting people. When you listen to a politician speak or even a preacher who says something you know is not true and for the Apostle Paul, he's looking at all these idols and is angering him but look at his response because it's critical to see what he does to culture as opposed to what we're supposed to do to each other because he's speaking to people who do not know Jesus and in verse 17 it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and devout people and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In other words, even though it it infuriated him, he did not accuse them, but literally the word is he dialogued with them. It is where we get our word dialogue when it says he reasoned with them. He saw it, it angered him, but he saw the bigger picture. And in the culture of people who didn't know Jesus, he chose dialogue, not ridicule and anger towards them. That's a huge lesson for us as we seek to engage a lost culture. It may anger you what they do. It might incense you to see what they're doing, but it does not move the message of Christ to hurl your provocation at them. Look at the lesson of Paul in dialogue. But on the other hand, when it comes to you and I as brothers in Christ, we are told we may have to get in each other's faces. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look at that. So you see this, this use of the word. It angered Paul in the, in, the, in the culture, but he spoke graciously and he dialogued. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us another way to have to, uh, we we'll really receive this. And, and what that means, what I'm, what I'm trying to show you is, if we have to learn to stir each other up, then we have to prepare our hearts for when someone tries to stir us, okay? And let's be honest, most people who try to stir you at first probably have more stirring that needs to be done in their life than they're trying to point out in yours, right? I mean, a lot of times people come up to you and they want to just, you know, brother, I just want to tell you this, and I just want to tell you, I love you first, you know you're in trouble. You know it's a bad day from that point on. So, but look at First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient, it's kind, it is not envious, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. And, there's the, and that phrase is our word that we're using. So when you look at the writer of Hebrews telling us we have to push each other's buttons, the prayer has to be the following, at least it does for me. Dear God, please help me to receive being stirred up. Please help me to be ready to receive being stirred up. That's hard. That's very, very difficult. And I'll get into some more application of that as we move to the back side of your page. But when you put these these together, it's literally shaking each other. And and maybe you've, you've had to do that. And I'm not talking about, you know, disciplining your kids. I'm talking about the brother in Christ who you see things happening in his life and you have to sit him down you have to say, man, listen, you can't do this. But we're not allowed to just point it out. We have to do some other things related to each other. So let's look at some more of the words. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and let's look at the rest of these words. So let us consider, we have to plan it. We have to think about it that we're going to stir each other up. We're going to have to irritate each other. We're going to have to sort of wash each other out and maybe even anger one another. But why? To stir each other up to love and good deeds. The Apostle Paul says the object of our teaching is love. So if I see you not walking in love, if I see you making Christianity look foolish because you're, you're lashing out at culture, I'm going to pull you aside and say, you're not showing the love of Christ. And you're going to say to me, I am telling people they are sinners. That's wonderful. I'm glad you're doing that. But why don't first you treat them as incredible, one-of-a-kind, miraculous creations of God and show them the love of Christ rather than pointing out their sorriness and their wickedness. And then in love, you can be able to share with them the gospel. And that word, good works, the reason I didn't give you those definitions is because here's the definition of Good works. Good works. That's what it is. It's a simple word for good labor. It's for the way you work. In fact, you could even say that if I see you working in such a way in the marketplace that it doesn't demonstrate the wonder of God, if I see you groaning and griping and complaining when you're at work, if I hear you talking about your employers in certain ways, Biblically, by definition, I should yank you aside and stir you up and shake you and even anger you and say, quit making a fool out of the faith I profess by the way you work. To stir each other up to love and good work. That's not a spiritual action, that's a physical action of your daily work. It's not separated from your worship. As a matter of fact, you can't claim to be a worshiper on Sunday if your daily labor is not an expression of the one you worship every day. If you show up on Sunday and raise your hands and sing praise the Lord, but Monday through Friday, your work is not exemplary, excellent, and a display of Christ, you are a hypocritical worshiper on Sunday at best. Your work is to be worshipped. You were created to labor. Labor is not a result of the fall. Labor is an expression of worship. And if I see you or you see me working or laboring in such a way that it does not bring glory to God, then you have permission by the writer of Hebrews to anger me and say, quit being so sorry about this. Pick it up. Come on. So people see Christ in these last days. Verse 25. Not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together. Now this word for neglecting is kind of interesting. If you look at the definition, is the idea of leaving something behind. Look at the second part. Becoming of less worth. What he's saying is don't let this priority of engaging each other become less important to you. And that's why I told you at the beginning of our time together, these disciplines in our lives as followers of Jesus can become less important to us and we can sort of set them aside. Doesn't mean they don't matter to us but we become less disciplined in them and I'll tell you this the more you grow as a follower of the Lord Jesus personally the more you'll have to fight to push in to find a group of people to do life with and to be accountable with because you will become self-feeding and self-sustaining which is good but you will also not feel like you you, you will not feel like you have to depend on others to speak into your life And I'll tell you, when we turn the page, the higher you rise, so to speak, the higher you go, the the greater level of leadership you attain in your life and work, the more difficult it is because it becomes an issue of trust. And so we'll talk about that some more. Do not neglect meeting together. So look at the definition of meeting together. You see this, it it has the feeling of the word synagogue in it. This meeting together is not the word for church. If you ever hear people talk about the church being the ecclesia or the called out ones, this is not the word there, okay? Look at the definition, a very rare secular Greek word that carried with it the act of gathering together and assembling together. Not a specific place of meeting, but the specific act of meeting together. In other words, find a way Keep finding a way to get together with one another so that you can stir each other up. You can encourage each other. Find a way to do this. Let's keep going. As is the habit, do not neglect, to meet together as is the habit of some. That word for habit, you can see in your definition, is where we get our word for culture. So the culture is to not get together For the greater purposes of growth, Christ-likeness, and spurring each other on. The writer of Hebrews is telling us you have to make it a discipline. You have to keep pushing against the culture of not gathering together. And then it uses this word. When you come together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That word parakaleo, if perhaps you've heard the word used for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete coming alongside. Now here's the the rest of the argument. I have the permission to walk up to Keith Roberts, my friend, and I'm just making fun of him just because he's sitting over there. And um, funny thing about Keith, he's so respectful. When he first met me years ago, he always called me pastor and he still does. And, and I appreciate that, but I don't like it. And, and so, I, I, um, um, so one day I came up to him and I said, Keith, I'm going to start calling you guitar player until you quit calling me pastor, okay? So every time we meet, I go, hello, guitar player. And so he calls me pastor, and I'm like, oh, no, no. So anyways, um, but so I see him messing up, like he's hitting all the wrong notes. So I, I pull him aside, and I stir him up, because I've made it a discipline to be together with him. But then the other side of that is, I cannot stir you up unless I'm willing to hitch up with you and keep walking with you. That's the flip side of this argument. I don't have the right to stir you unless I'm willing to carry you. You don't have the right to stir me unless you're willing to carry. As a matter of fact, you don't have the right and I don't have the right to stir up one another unless we're willing for a season to carry your load that is causing you to go through what you're going through. That's the difference. So if I see a brother not living in accordance with the way he is supposed to live under his confession of Christ, when I stir him up, my question has to be, can you tell me why this is happening? Because if I can alleviate this, if I can paracoleo this, if I can walk with you through this, I'll do it for a season because there's something bigger we have to live together for. That's the difference. I can't just roll into people's lives and go, you know, stir you up lightning bolt, stir you up lightning bolt, and walk away. I have to be willing to stir and then to walk alongside. I have to make it a discipline to gather with you and then to walk with you. That's the the problem with only having answers but not being able to walk with people in culture. Which is, I would say, one of the greatest challenges facing the church today is it's easy to have an answer. It's another thing to walk with culture towards Jesus. It's easy to point... It's another issue to go ahead and drive to get them there. Okay? So when he tells us to meet together and stir each other up, he finishes it by saying, well, look at the definition. I didn't even read it. Beseeching and exhorting and cheering. Man, I love that word. You may not like it. If you're an Aggie, yell. Okay? Um, Comforting, asking for help. Something akin to the refusal to allow one another to fall behind or fail. Let me tell you something. This is why when you watch uh, S- sports center or you see stories of teams that will, uh, I remember seeing a story of a football team that, had to, that was hosting a, a group of players who had been in prison, they were juvenile, and, and, and they never won a game, and this team played them and the coach told them, all our fans are going to sit on their side and we're going to do everything we can possibly do to allow this team to taste victory. Some of you are so diehard, you go, you mean they threw the game? Bigger purpose. Bigger purpose. It means I have to be willing to throw an agenda in order to help you gain a win. That means I stir, I hitch up next to you, we walk towards your win. With this in mind, someday... You'll stir me up, hitch up next to me and move me to my next win, okay? Stephen Covey called it a win-win. The writer of Hebrews said it before he was born. So let's keep going. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, more and more as you see the day drawing near. I wanted to give you an idea of what it meant by the day. So I pulled this quote uh, from F.F. Bruce. So let's read it together. Some would indeed consider the impending destruction of the temple and of all that was considered sacred and holy to be the day. Remember, our audience is watching Rome run over their culture, their city, and their faith, or the, the uh, symbols of their faith. But the totality of the phrase, the day, is simply a reminder that each and every generation lives in the impending last day and are to thus live as a Christian generation in their time. It's always the fourth quarter. It's always the bottom of the ninth inning, Bases loaded, two outs, full count. It's always, always that way. So turn the page. Let's try to find some ways to apply this before we hit the marketplace today. These quotes are not as long as you think they are because the first three lines of every quote are the same. So because of the finished once and for all work of my high priest and savior and the life-changing and sustaining access to the throne room of God and all of its supplied grace and glory. So that's going to be the same phrase in every one of these. My life must be marked by the discipline of deliberate person-to-person, man-to-man provocation for the glory of God, the cause of the gospel, and my greatest joy. Now, a couple things you might want to write in the margin. This will require effort. It will require effort. I, even to the point of it has to become valued in your life, which you will never put any effort into anything you don't value. So it has to be valued in your life. And you may even have to set limits on it. I literally, in order for me to engage this discipline in my life, have to put it in my planner And when I'm going to exercise this discipline to put this into my life, it's gonna require, it doesn't require perfection, but it will require trust. I told you earlier I'd come back to this issue. There will be a trust issue to trust someone to provoke in your life, and it will be a testing issue and the higher you, uh, you, you, you rise, so to speak, in your leadership, in your company, and in your church, and in your discipleship, and in your walk with the Lord, the tougher the fight will be because it will be tougher to find someone you can trust to speak into your life who is pursuing the Lord Jesus as heartily as you are. It's always easy to find something you want to correct in others when you are not walking in accordance with the way you wish you should walk. And there's always people willing to correct. You guys have all been in small groups, probably. Everybody's been in the small group with that guy. The one that knows the answer to everything. The one who has a story for everything. The one that when everybody shows up, you know in their minds when he's late, everybody's going, oh, this is the day. This is gonna be a good one. He's not gonna be here. And the dominator does not arrive and it's a sweet, sweet time. If that was you, you need to quit. And so I'm just telling you, well, there's always people who say, well, let me tell you, what, you know, and, and people in people that, in that group, there's that guy who somebody speaks, and he's like, you know what, I remember when I was going through that, and everybody just goes, oh, please just die. But anyways, it's just, I, I, I know you thought it, so don't, it's just a moment of honesty. So just be careful with this, but also know you got to have people who can stir you up. Had a good friend text me the other day, this is a month ago, we, um, we hadn't talked in a long time. And he just texted me and he said, hey brother, hadn't seen you in a while, hadn't talked to you. And he literally asked me in his text, he goes, who's stirring you up and who's sharpening the iron of your life? And so I ask you, who's stirring you up? And who's sharpening you? And you might want to make it a matter of prayer. One of the prayers I have for my children is that they would find a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It's in my notes that I pray over their lives. For each one of them I say, dear God, give them the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I pray that prayer for my wife. For people that I'm close with, I pray that God brings bring someone in their life to sharpen them and I hope they're praying that same thing for me as I pray that for myself. Who is sharpening? Who do you trust to provoke you? And if you have trust issues, which most of us do, then begin to pray, God, help me to trust who you're putting in my life to provoke me. Number two. You know the first part, because of the finished once and for all. You can read that. The supplied grace and glory, the middle of the paragraph. My life must be marked by a lifestyle of finding other followers of Jesus Christ and gathering together on a regular basis. What this looks like, this is the important part here. What this looks like, how it is practiced, and the methods involved change. But the clarity of the message and the necessity of the gathering do not Now the reason that's so important is because the stages of your life in discipleship ebb and flow and change. There could have been a season in your life where Sunday school, and I'm not making a Sunday school case, there could have been seasons in your life where Sunday school spoke great life into you. Then there were seasons where you needed something different and you needed a small group or something, a gathering in the office or something like that. This is not a verse telling people to go to church. It's not. In fact, you can't even find the reference to the word church there. It's a verse telling us we've got to fight with each other for a greater goal. So as you grow in Christ, your needs, your community needs, your growth needs, your discipleship needs change. But the call to pursue that never changes. And at the heart of that growth and discipleship must be the centrality of the word of God. But even more important than that is the pushing towards being conformed to Christ likeness. Now you just heard me say something and some of you said he just said something more important than God's word. There is because what God's word does is grow you to be more like Christ. My object of worship is not the infallible, inerrant, perfect, trustworthy word of God. My object of worship is the Jesus the word points me to. The goal is to not have more scripture memorized. It's to be more like Jesus through the scripture that's in my life. Because it's spirit. So when you gather together and you grow as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ together... Whatever method you use or practice you use will come and go, but the word must be central. The pursuit of Jesus must be exalted, and are you becoming more like Jesus? A couple of things you might want to write in the margin. I just wrote these down. You must engage, and this must become the culture of your life. It must become a part of the culture of your life. Um, uh, you, uh, no, nah, never mind. Let's go to number three. No, let's go back to that point. Um, I, I know that the, the popular phrase, it's not as popular as it used to be, is accountability groups and things like that, okay? This is not an accountability group, okay? An accountability group is not an accountability group unless you know where the other people in your accountability group are their weakest. There is no accountability until you know where a player on your team is at his worst, and when you know where a player on your team is at his worst, then you know how to protect him and stir him up. Okay? See, accountability is not just all going around a table talking about movies and boobies. Okay? Accountability is being able to say, this is the place I must grow. Will you be willing to step in and stir me up if I trust you? And will you let me in to stir you up where you trust me? And that requires Understanding and trusting each other with where I wrestle and where I need to grow, and that should be something that's changing and moving. Okay, I'll give you a quick example. Um, my friend back in the back, one of our elders, David Turner, texted me the other day when I was in Vancouver, Canada. Sends me. A t- I, I think it was a blessing. Um, he he said, "You've been on my heart and over your safety, something like that. You were concerned over my safety." I mean, you, you know, you get a text that says, I've, I've really been worried about your safety while you're out of town. Be careful. I was like, is that encouraging? And, um, and so I thought about it and I was, you know, now I'm looking around every corner. <laughs> I'm like, are you going to kill me? And, and so, but I got to my room that night and began praying about what David had spoken into my life. And as I'm journaling that night, here's what came to my mind. My danger is not physical, it's spiritual because I'm tired And I know what happens to my mind and my heart when I'm tired. And that'll kill me more than you cutting my head off. So do you have people that know where you can struggle? That's accountability. Sitting around a table at the IHOP and looking at each other and being able to pray over your meal and hope everybody sees you're a godly group of guys is not what it's all cracked up to be. What's moving the culture is when we as men know how to fight each other's battles so that when you get to the marketplace, by the way you work, they see Jesus in you and your family sees that something's changing in you and you've been stirred up and the word is central and Christ is exalted. Is that happening? Number three, because of the finished once and for all work of my high priest and Savior, and you've seen this quote over and over the last two lines, My life must be marked by the deliberate action of doing everything I can to keep one of our own from falling behind and quitting. I have to to be willing to do whatever it takes to find a fallen comrade, so to speak. A fallen soldier and say, I'll do whatever it takes to get you off this battlefield so you can get healed and re-engaged in this deal. I have found in my tenure as a pastor, this is one of the hardest things to do because some people don't want to keep fighting. But we also are sometimes very, very guilty of not allowing each other to fail. We have certain things you're not allowed to fail in. That's why I think it was so important so many years ago when Mike shared with us his story of struggling with same-sex attraction because you couldn't find a more controversial subject. And so then immediately the heart of this church becomes, it doesn't matter what you've done, we will walk with you through what God will do. And I have to be committed to not let one of our own fall behind. That's hard. That's very hard. And I wrote in the margin, on many occasions this requires number one, and it can get very hard. In other words, it requires provoking, but then oftentimes, I will tell you, if you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother, there will be seasons where you will provoke each other, and I'm going to use some harsh words. You may even hate each other for a while because of it. But if your brother loves Jesus and you love Jesus, and the provocation was from the Lord, and you're committed to not leave each other behind, he will nurture that relationship back to the sincerity and beauty of a Christ-centered relationship. It's just what happens as you push into each other's lives. You say, I don't think that's biblical. Really? Do you remember what Paul did? In relationship to John Mark when there was a dispute between he and Barnabas it says the Bible says a sharp dispute imagine that dispute Paul and he says I don't like that kid he's weighing me down and Barnabas says well I think he's great and Paul says fine you guys go your way I'm going mine but then later on there's a sweet reconciliation as all parties grow so a lot of stuff going on there number four Because of the finished once and for all work, you can see the phrase, go to the uh, fourth line. My life must be marked by the constant awareness that I live in the last days. There are no neutral moments. I hate that quote, by the way. I think it's true, but I hate it. I hate the fact that it's true. It doesn't mean I can't rest But there are no neutral moments because my days have been ordained by God. My moments have been structured. My seconds have been numbered. There is no neutral moment. And my time on the earth matters to those around me and those who have gone before me. Turn to chapter 11, verse 39. Let's finish here. Next week we'll be in chapters 11 and 12. But this this meditation, I think, is substantial. I'll let you decide whether it's awesome and great in your life, but verse 39, after this huge discussion about the heroes of the faith, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So our our spiritual forebears never received, never saw, quote unquote, the completion of God's promise. Verse 40, Because, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, apart from you and I, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the work of Abraham, the work of Moses, the work of Noah, David, Samson, Gideon, although they did what they were supposed to do, it's still not finished. The game is still being played. And the, that game is being witnessed. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I don't know what that looks like. I have no idea. I'm not even going to tell you what it looks like, but the, the imagination can run wild of what it could possibly look like of whatever this heavenly host of witnesses watching us subbing in to finish their game. Like you've been tapped in, so to speak, not tapped out, you've been tapped in and your your spiritual forebears are waiting for you to finish what they started. That's the truth. Look at verse one. A great cloud of witnesses witnessing this because they're waiting to see you finish the race they started what I love about this is that every single person mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 was a, a, a notorious failure. And you should check up on that. What are you talking about? Abraham gave his wife away to harems twice. Abraham said to God, when God said, I'm going to give you a son, he goes, Why don't you just use Ishmael? Samson, you know his problems, and he's listed. You imagine Samson, I don't want to be dramatic, but he, I, can you imagine Samson looking at you and all your junk, whatever your junk is, that you think you're more like Samson without hair than you with Samson with hair. And then the end of his story is, God, please use me one more time. And God uses him in a greater act of revenge, so to speak, in his death than he ever did in his life. And all of these, look at, look at, Moses, who said, God, I can't speak. I can't speak at all. I don't want to do this. You've got the wrong guy. He hit a rock when he was supposed to speak to a rock, but God kept using him and using him and using him. This entire audience is saying to you, lay aside every weight The sin that clings so closely to you and run with endurance the race set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him. Gentlemen, you are not running your race. You are running a race for the kingdom, in the kingdom, with the kingdom that is more than about you. And if the Bible is true, That means there are witnesses to the way you're racing. Dependent. Consider this. Abraham, Moses, Samson, David, Gideon are counting on you to move us one step closer to what they never got to touch. That's your life. That's not the preacher's life. That's your life. The rest Chapter 4, that you've been called into a promised land. Moses saying, one more step into a land I never touched, so to speak. That is the significance of your non-neutral moment life. And you get this day to claim it. Let's pray together. So Father, so much at stake. Some in this room will sit in powerful places today. And will be more easily able to see the influence of their lives. Others today will serve in obscurity. No one will see them. No one will, uh, they won't even carry a business card. They have no title. They'll be in a field. or in the corner of an office building. Shuffling papers. Others might be looking for work. But biblically... We have been told those things are not the defining markers of a life of influence. For the truth is, how we live in silence before you, but in the presence of others watching or not watching, determines how well we're running this race. So Father, may each of us consider how to stir each other up to love and good deeds, to encourage each other, to not succumb to the culture of neglecting assembly together and and fighting for each other and carrying each other's burdens and loads, but also deeply realizing in a a non-dramatic but deeply truthful way that there is no neutrality to our lives, that we are a part of something that is vastly larger than we could ever imagine. And for those who would call themselves followers of Jesus It is a high calling. For we recognize in your scriptures there is no higher calling than to be called a follower of Jesus. There's no superior pastoral place or elder place or deacon place. To be called a child of God means we are in the fight with a crowd of witnesses encouraging us to lay these things aside and to keep fighting. And may we keep doing that. And when our day is marked with failure, which it will be, we confess, May we do what every great athlete does. He looks at his failure, tries to understand why it happened, works on what didn't work and how he can make it work and strives to become a champion. So bless this day. May these men preach well by the way they work. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Thanks for being here.